why everyone's talking about Barclays' new DIY platform, August's markets and your money, and Templeton Emerging Markets turnaround. This is the Personal Finance Show with me, Deputy Personal Finance Editor Kate Bealey. So this week, Barclays launched its new DIY investment platform, Smart Investor. But readers have been getting in touch with us to say that the site no longer features critical trading services they chose it for. And they say it's encountered numerous issues since launch too. Now, I'm joined by personal finance writer Emma Adjuman. Emma, talk us through what's been going on with this launch at Smart Investor. So, as you say, Barclays decided to overhaul its platform from the old stockbroker site to a new Smart Investor website, migrating more than 200,000 customers over the bank holiday weekend. But since then, customers have complained of lots of different issues. Um, some have said that they haven't received the login details they need to be able to log into their accounts or they're unable to do so when they actually get through to their account. Um, others have said that they're missing transactions when they are able to log into their account. And some are saying that when they log in, they see error mess- messages. Um, another issue that's been highlighted is inconsistent stock pricing, with people seeing um, sort of the wrong price for stocks that in their portfolios. Okay, now Barclays has said, hasn't it, that in fact this is affecting um, only a small number of customers, but they have been getting enormous uh, volumes of calls on it, haven't they? And, yeah. And their online uh, chat was shut down on Monday as a result. But what do Barclays say then about what they're what they're doing to resolve those issues? Um, well, as you say, for logins, they've said that that should really have only have affected about 2% of their customer base. But for people who are affected, they should contact them to request new login details, and they'll be happy to do that as soon as possible. Um, for missing account transactions, they've said that that has tended to be to do with limit orders, which customers were told beforehand wouldn't be migrated over to the new system. And it in terms of error messages and the issues with inconsistent stock pricing, it said it's aware of some issues and it's working to resolve these. Okay, but people aren't just angry about that, are they? So no. so why has this caused a backlash among among kind of active share traders, I guess? Well, apart from the launch issues, um, customers are angry that services for people who have large share-only portfolios um, are becoming more expensive. And in some cases, services that were on the old stockbroker site um, are, are no longer on the new one. So, for example, previously investors could see daily live price changes in their stocks compared to the previous day price. But now they can only view these um, in the value against the book cost rather than the previous day's um, value. And that's something that if you're particularly um, a frequent trader, you know, it's important to you. Yeah. So so what does Barclay say then about about that backlash? Well, apart from um, accepting the fact that it has made some change to its viewing prices feature, it says that the majority of features on the stockbroker site are still available in its new Smart Investor Research Centre. And actually, they've made that easier for people to look at um, because previously you had to log in to be able to see all of those features, whereas now you can just go immediately onto the site and select the research centre. Okay, um, so what are those some of those services that, that either have changed or that Barclays no longer offers? And you mentioned a couple there, but yeah. what are some of the other ones? Well, some other ones are the ability to trade international shares or complex intru- instruments such as covered warrants, both of which will no longer be supported on the new um, site. But some other services which have gone are the ability for investors to be able to manage their spouse's accounts or to manage accounts in a bear trust. 
And finally, um, the ability to manage an account via power of attorney online. Barclays says it's going to keep the service, but um, investors will need to ring up their telephone help desk to manage that. Okay, so this this is part of a, a bigger kind of strategic move by Barclays, isn't it? They're they're trying to kind of broaden out the appeal of this platform to, I guess, a new kind of investor or investors who haven't haven't dipped their toe in the market before. So mm. who who would benefit from this? Well, it tends to be good news for people who hold um, large fund portfolios um, and are potentially, you know, maybe a little bit newer to invest in, don't have as much um, complex holdings or want to do more complicated things. But obviously for many of our readers who are quite sophisticated um, and and do like the complexity and like the complexity of the old stockbroker site, that's a bit of a problem. Yeah, particularly as, in fact... Barclays stockbrokers was one of the one of the few sites which really catered towards those mm. kind of sophisticated share traders, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. So, what about those share traders and those people who maybe cannot use Barclays anymore for the things it used to? Are there other brokers out there who offer those things? Um, yeah, there are. So, in this week's um, issue of the magazine, I've looked at some alternatives that are offering the services that Barclays no longer does. Um, so, for example, the ability to trade international shares. Um, you could go to platforms such as Charles Stanley Direct, um, TD Direct Investing, Hargreaves Lansdowne, AJ Bell, IG Markets and Interactive Investor. Um, and another issue that's come up a lot is people really sort of like the ability to manage a spouse's account. And actually the majority of platforms will allow you to do this with no extra charge. So there are options out there. OK, thanks, Emma. Now moving on, August was a nerve-wracking month with North Korea stepping up its nuclear plans with a threat to fire missiles into US territory. That had the result of driving investors into safe haven assets. But low-risk assets were not the only things that performed well. I'm joined now to talk about the market movements and how they could affect your money with Henrietta Grimston, Relationship Manager at Seven Investment Management. So, Henrietta, gold performed well at the start of the month, didn't it, after Donald Trump and North Korea exchanged this heated war of words. Where is the gold price now and has it performed as as you might have expected? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, gold is one of these safe haven assets. So it is something that investors flock to in times of uncertainty. And as we've seen increasingly over the last few years, we're not just talking about economic uncertainty, we're also talking about political events as well. And um, the gold price itself is up 18% year to date. So it's had a fantastic run already this year and currently at around $1,351 per ounce. Okay, so what do you think of gold then as an asset to go into when investors are are worried either about market risk or geopolitical risk? I think because it's a tangible asset, it's something that people can really kind of get their head around. They can hold it if they really want to do so as a way of accessing um, gold as an investment. And it's also thought of as sort of the last remaining currency should something really happen quite catastrophically around the world. So I think investors like it because they understand what it is they're actually investing in. Okay, so what about the downsides? Because there are people who really don't like gold, aren't there? Yeah, well, there's there's two kind of big downsides. One is that you can lose money in gold. You know, people always think about it as an asset that is going to appreciate in value. In the same way, I guess we have this sort of inbuilt thought of property sometimes as well. But, you know, the price of gold can be very volatile. And investors who had held it right up until the end of the financial crisis, where, you know, it hit highs of sort of 1,900, obviously be looking at quite a, a loss potentially from those markets highs. 
there's also an issue with how you actually access the investment. You know, very few of us have the ability to just go and buy some gold bars. Um, even if you do have the option to do that, you've got to consider the storage costs, um, the insurance costs associated with that. So it isn't just as straightforward as you know, perhaps going to um, you know a platform and buying an asset. There's a lot of things to think about with it. Okay, and, and you said there obviously difficulty of physically accessing it. What what's the best way to invest in it? So it's the easiest way for investors to get access is through gold ETF, so these tracking funds that uh, move in the direction of the price of gold. But there are two core types out there. One actually physically holds gold behind the scenes, so you are buying that real asset. A lot of them are actually um, constructed using derivatives, so there are sort of swaps going on in the background. So you're not really buying gold, but you're just getting a product which will supposedly track the price of gold. Okay. Now, also in August, the yen performed very strongly. Why do investors like Japanese currency in in these kind of nerve-wracking times? Yeah, I mean, it's quite a complex question. There are a lot of elements to it. I mean, one of the things is that the yen is just a very largely traded currency. Of the the top sort of seven largest traded currencies, it is one of those. That constitutes about 80% of the Forex market, those seven in combinations. Um, The other thing is the yen is often used as part of a carry trade. Um, Investors will borrow in yen, which uh, typically has been very cheap to do so, um, use that to gain access to other currencies that might be more volatile. So when we do see an increase in volatility, in those other currencies, they have to very backtrack very quickly and cover those um, yen exposures. Um, same really from a Japanese government point of view. Um, you know, they obviously repatriate a lot of yen back to home as and when um, volatility increases. But from an economic point of view as well, they do run quite a large current account surplus. Obviously, lots of um, economies around the world are in deficit. So yeah, it has a number of characteristics that make it a safe haven currency. Okay, so what does that mean for whether you should or should not rush out and buy Japanese equity funds in these times? Yeah, so what we've seen over the last few years is actually there's been an inverse relationship between the performance of the stock market and the performance of the currency. So the two really do need to be thought of in very independent terms. You know, we've heard a lot about the abenomics, so the policies that have been put in place um, by the Japanese uh, government and the Bank of Japan in order to help stimulate their economy. And the Japanese economy has had decades of really sluggish growth and actually deflation. So the decision as to whether you want to invest in Japanese equities is very, very separate from whether you want to hold the currency. Okay. Uh, so what else have investors been buying in, in that kind of flight to safety we saw at the start of August? Yeah, so on the currency sakes, um, we've got the Swiss franc. Um, again, another one of those that has this perception of being uh, you know, a safe haven currency. And, and the other asset class that tends to do well during these timeframes is US Treasury, so US government debt. In terms of low-risk bonds, so government bonds, uh, as you said, they did well, but prices there are now looking very high, aren't they? And people are nervous about buying those as a result. Do you think they are still low risk, these government bonds? Yeah, so, so obviously the perception is if you're buying the debt of uh, you know a government like uh, the US or you know, even some of the big Western governments like the UK as well, that you should in theory be buying a very low risk asset because the chances of those governments defaulting on their debts should be very low. The problem is that the price of these assets do fluctuate and they do have a guaranteed redemption price. At the moment, a lot of those Western government um, treasuries and, and gilts are trading above the price that they are going to mature at. So you're actually buying a guaranteed loss. So whether that would then still be considered a safe haven asset? Potentially not, if you're considering that you're definitely making a loss. Okay. Um, So generally speaking, is political risk or geopolitical risk, as we've seen, a good reason to move into cautious assets in your portfolio? 
So we always encourage investors to think about the longer term picture. Yes, of course, there are short term fluctuations that have to be considered from an investment perspective. Obviously, if you've made the decision to outsource your investment decisions to an asset manager, hopefully they will be doing some of that for you. But in terms of how much risk you need to take, actually, the longer term picture is far more important. If you choose to keep on de-risking your portfolio when actually you do need a higher level of return to actually achieve your aims, you're potentially going to miss out in the long term. That's really important, particularly when we're thinking about pensions. So, you know, there are some investors out there that will probably need to carry more risk in order to achieve those aims. Does mean short term, you could see a little bit of volatility in your portfolio. Uh, And of course, you have to balance out those long term aims with comfort levels as well. Okay, I mean, we've been talking a lot about low risk, but strangely in August, um, while those low risk assets did well, things like emerging markets and Russia equities did really well too. So what's behind that? It feels a bit surreal. Yeah, so from a Russian perspective, um, the stock exchange there is really heavily dominated by uh, the movements of oil. There's a lot of oil related companies in their index. And actually, the price of oil has increased quite strongly, and particularly since June, it was around $42 a barrel, we're up to about $54, $55 a barrel today. So there's quite a close correlation between the two there. I suppose the other thing to think about is that, you know, the situation that is going on in North Korea, this isn't the first one of these events that we've had. A lot of these political risks are out there and factored into the market to a degree. So, you know, we've seen a fairly benign reaction from some, as you say, the slightly more risky um, aspects of the equity market. And probably because, as I say, you know, a lot of these risks are known, even if the end solutions aren't. Okay. And just on the Russia thing, would you ever invest in a Russia fund, a Russian equities? Yeah, I mean, when you're going for something very specific like that, you you probably would have to have a view on oil as well, because it would be an indirect play on oil rather than just going out and buying a product that will track the price of oil. So that would be one reason as to why you would want to go into Russian stocks. Obviously, you know, you also need to think about the state of the Russian economy. And if you had a very strong view on how that is going to perform going stronger, that would be uh, would be a a reason to invest there. But of, of course, you know, there is quite a lot of volatility associated with that market. So investors would be needed to be comfortable with that. Okay. And what else is driving emerging markets at the moment, would you say? Well, China, of course, is a huge factor when it comes to emerging markets and the state of the Chinese economy. You know, let's not forget this is the world's second largest economy. You know, we're seeing this continual rise of the middle classes really in a lot of emerging markets. And actually, a lot of those emerging markets are, are you know, becoming very close to being the next developed markets. It's really the sort of frontier end of the spectrum now, which is considered to be the much less developed economies around the world. So, you know, it's a question mark as to how many of these emerging markets really are still truly emerging markets. And we'll be coming on to talk about that a lot more in a minute. But um, just finally on this, what do you think or what factors will be driving the way markets move over the coming months? So the, the big factors are really interest rate moves from the ECB. We've seen yesterday um, that they've announced they're not going to change interest rates this month and they're also not going to cease their QE bond purchasing program at the moment. But you know, European markets are really looking to the ECB to get an indication as to when you know, particularly the bond purchasing side of things will start to unwind. We've also got a similar question mark in the US as to whether we're going to see interest rates rise again this year. Actually, it's looking increasingly unlike now particularly with the recent hurricane. Um, you know, we've seen the jobless numbers also start to increase in the US on the back of that. So probably less pressure. But those really are two large factors that the markets are looking at. OK, thanks very much. Now, next, moving on to Templeton Emerging Markets. 
The fund has really turned itself around since former fund manager Mark Mobius stepped down to replace by Carlos Hardenberg in 2015. Two years ago, it was an underperforming fund which was heavily invested in mining and resource stocks. Now it's soaring. It's up 27.6% in the year to date against a 20% return from the MSCI emerging markets. And it had a really stellar 2016 too. So its period outperformance does coincide with the new manager, Carlos Hardenberg. Henrietta, do you think he is to credit for this performance? Well, he's definitely made a, a number of key changes to the fund itself, um, almost doubled the underlying number of holdings and actually you know, moved the fund towards being invested in sort of you know, some very specific sectors such as tech stocks, um, consumer discretionary and also financial. So there's some very big plays there at a sector level. Um, 2015 as a whole was quite difficult for some of the emerging markets. We had the Chinese currency devaluation in the August and that really set off quite a lot of nervousness and particularly in Asian markets. So to some degree, he did take over the management of the fund at what was quite a difficult point in time. But now that we're seeing this outperformance versus the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, which it was lagging for quite some time, he does have to be credited uh, with that additional outperformance. Okay, and so you've pointed out there, it was a kind of dark time for emerging markets generally, wasn't it, 2015? But, But do you think that is the explanation for why the trust was underperforming? Were there other reasons? Well, I say I think you know the the change in the underlying um, sector split um, will have been a big factor in terms of driving the performance going forwards. Um, I think you know it's also very difficult when a manager has been running a fund for a long period of time. Maybe you need a little bit of an injection in terms of fresh ideas, a different way of looking at things. Um, so you know it's I suppose it's always easy to look back with the benefit of hindsight, um, but it does look like this fresh approach to managing the fund has really made a big difference. But in terms of the the kind of specific issues was it overly concentrated was that a problem or was it uh, invested in sectors which maybe weren't the best ones or do you think it was just a case of uh, a short run of bad performance well, one of the other factors that comes from emerging markets is also style as well. So we see this rotation between valuation, between sorry, value investing and growth investing. Emerging markets has flipped between the two quite consistently for a number of years. This fund as a whole is, is probably more orientated towards value as well. So, of course, the periods of time in the market where growth was the bigger driver, this sort of style fund would have struggled as well. So I think there are a large number of factors that will have contributed to that sort of lag in performance during that time frame. We've also seen a general outperformance of larger cap stocks in emerging markets and that always makes it very difficult for active managers to actually keep pace with that additional outperformance when you see that split between large and small cap. Yeah, well, that's interesting, actually, isn't it? Because when Carlos took over, he said he wanted to move away from some of those large blue chip names towards smaller stocks, which were less well researched. So do you think that has helped? Is that an area where managers can really add value? Yeah, I mean, it is definitely a part of the market where you can add value because obviously if it is under research, chances are there won't be as many other managers looking at that. Of course, that brings challenges with actually getting access to a lot of the details on those companies. So you can argue you're you're dialing up the risk by going into smaller companies. Um, Having said that, you look at some of the big holdings in the fund itself today and there are still some big names in there that dominate the top 10, you know, names like Alibaba and Unilever as well. So, yes, there has been more of a bias towards smaller companies, but of course, those big ones are still important. Okay, and so you mentioned there about the kind of new sectors that he's been tapping into and some of the themes that he's moving into are things like healthcare and green energy and and fintech. 
investors think, don't they, about emerging market stocks as, as very kind of commodity focused traditionally and things like mining stocks. I mean, does his view and, and now this funds makeup show that, in fact, emerging market companies are, are very different to, to the things we think of and, and growing increasingly more sophisticated and, and disruptive? Yeah, well, this really comes back to, I think, the evolution of the consumer base in these countries. You know, we're seeing that obviously we've got this evolution of middle classes. That means they tend to have a much larger disposable income. So the economies start to become much more tilted towards services rather than relying on manufacturing, which is obviously why historically there has been such a close link to commodities and emerging markets. So, you know, things like you know the consumer discretionary, so clothing brands, you know, we've seen how just how popular a lot of the, the big European kind of fashion house brands are in places like Asia. So it it does sort of lend itself towards this tilt of changing the makeup of the funds versus the makeup of the consumers there. So in 2015, this fund lost 23.9% when the index gained 4%. So as we've talked about, you know, this is a big turnaround. But how long do you give a manager to demonstrate their outperformance? Or how long do you give them uh, when they're underperforming to turn it around? So, um, so this is kind of two answers or two halves of, of the answer to that question. The first half is I would say two years is actually quite a short period of time in terms of you know, assessing whether a manager or an investment house has done well. So yes, he has done well over the last two years and I don't really want to take that away from him. Having said that, you know, we would normally look at a longer period of performance when we're assessing you know, sort of how good a manager or an investment style is. Realistically, three years is probably the minimum, ideally five, to, to really get a good gauge as to whether you know this was just a good period or whether this is actually a good style full stop. In terms of considering um, whether you know perhaps you might want to remove a manager from a portfolio, whether they're doing particularly badly, you need to look quite detailed as to the reasons why. Is it a case of actually their underlying stock decisions were wrong? Um, in which case, you know, you need to analyse, you know, sort of why they've made those decisions, what they're going to do about it um, going forward. Is it a case of actually the style of the fund has changed completely? In which case, it might not be appropriate in terms of its inclusion. In in the portfolio. Obviously, something like a manager change can sometimes be a big negative for a lot of investment houses in terms of whether they would still want to hold a fund as well. So it it does come down to what the rationale or what the reason, I suppose, behind uh, the underperformance actually is. Okay. And similarly, as as we've touched on, um, this period of outperformance does coincide with a period of general outperformance for emerging markets. I mean, to what what extent is Carlos kind of riding a, a rising wave here? Yeah, so it, you know, it obviously helps if you're investing in a favoured sector. But yeah, the fact that he has outperformed by, as you say, you know, sort of seven percent year to date, you know, that's quite a considerable outperformance. Um, you know, so clearly there is some decisions that they're making uh, within the fund itself, which is benefiting. It's not just literally tracking the movement of the index. Okay, um, and do you think this emerging market rally? Can it last? They've obviously emerged from quite a bleak period between 2010 and 15. Are there fundamental reasons to think emerging markets now have much further to grow? Yeah, so yes, in terms of the growth, um, obviously, as I said, you know, this this sort of development of these economies moving away from, you know, being emerging into something which is much more um, sophisticated, much more stable. We've seen a lot of the central banks in these regions um, really get to grip with the likes of inflation. So you are getting this maturity of these markets. Um, A lot of them aren't as indebted as the West is. They don't have as many of the same hangovers from the financial crisis. Um, Having said that, let's, you know, look back to the political 
political events of the the last month, you know, if something really horrible does happen in North Korea, particularly if you go down the route of thinking about what Trump was suggesting over the weekend about putting sanctions on um, countries that actually trade directly with them, China would be hugely impacted by that. China is clearly you know, a very crucial part of particularly Asian um, economies. So if there was a, a negative impact on them from what is going on in North Korea, that could have quite a ripple effect around the other emerging economies. Okay, and just in terms of how easy it is to find good performing emerging market funds, are there many that you like or is it a tricky area? Well, you know, looking backwards at past performance is never an indication as, you know, how something is going to perform going forward. So when you sit down and evaluate any manager, irrespective of whether you're looking at emerging markets or or any other region for that matter, you know, you have to think quite carefully about, you know, the style of that manager. I've mentioned the sort of changes between um, value and growth investing, particularly in emerging markets. Um, you want to look at, you know, the longevity of the team that have been involved, um, but also how those managers are going to complement the other holdings that you have in your portfolio. Um, So we tend not to have sort of one favoured manager in any particular region, but if we're going to include someone in the portfolio, are they going to do something different from one of the other managers that we hold? Because there's very little point in having a whole collection of managers that are all doing the same thing. Okay, thanks very much. Well, I think that's about all we've got time for. Uh, So for everything that we've discussed today, pick up the magazine or check on the website. Otherwise, we'll be back again next week. So have a good weekend.